Now I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We started a study in that last week. In that beginning or in that introduction, we shared with you that the Gospel of John covers the last three years of Jesus' life. That means that in those 21 chapters, John has got to pack in all kinds of teaching, and it moves very quickly. In the midst of all that teaching, John puts stories in his gospel. There are stories of how Jesus transforms lives. There are stories of people that met their Savior and became a new person. It is my goal in the coming weeks to lift those stories off of the pages and help you see how Jesus does this. But I am also praying that you will find your own story in the midst of this. This morning, we are going to look at six people that were changed by Jesus Christ. Now, don't get overwhelmed by the number six. That doesn't mean we're going to plow through each one of those. They all come very quickly, and they come together. So you'll be able to see that as we get into it. But keep your Bible open to John chapter 1. We're going to bounce around to some other places, but we will always land back there. So hopefully you have a Bible with you and will be able to do this. I'm going to ask Deanie to come and pray with us before we start this exploration, and then we'll get right into it. Will you pray with me, please? Father, as uh, we come this morning, God, uh, we are asking you to come into our hearts and minds and that we will hear and learn some things this morning. You can speak to each person here. You, we know you do that, and that's what we are asking you to do. We want that, God. And then also in the preparation that Phil has uh, made in uh, his message, that you would bless him for that and, uh, and use him as he reveals your word to us and tells us about it, God. But also, God, let us remember that uh, the whole reason that we can even be here today and have hope and uh, uh, find strength in you is because you rescued us through your son, Jesus. And for that, uh, we say thank you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. There are 12 names that I believe every Bible student should be familiar with. In fact, there are 12 names that I believe every Christian should be familiar with. And maybe you are, and maybe you've just never thought through them in this order. But let me walk you through these names real quick. There's Andrew and Peter, James and John, Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Philip, Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew. He has two names in the Bible. Judas, Thomas, Thaddeus, And James, the son of Alphaeus, also called James the Less or James the Little. He has different names. Now, the last guy on that list is a really unique person in the Bible. He only shows up four times, and it's always in the same list with these 12 men. Of course, those are the names of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, the original ones. And as I say, I believe that every Christian should be familiar with those names. And you should be familiar with the stories of how they came to know Jesus. Because they're foundational for everyone else that would enter into a relationship with the Savior. Now, before we get into that, let's just back up a little bit and see what all we know about them. If you put 12 men together in a room and they were to circle up, it will not take very long before they start talking about their occupations. So imagine with me for just a minute that those 12 men, the 12 disciples, are gathered in a room in a circle and they're just talking for the first time. And somebody says, well, what do you do for a living? 
Four of them are going to answer that they are fishermen. Andrew and Peter are going to say that they are fishermen. James and John are going to say the same thing. Andrew and Peter, or Simon as he is called, are brothers and they work for their dad who owns his own fishing business. James and John, also brothers, and they fish. Matthew is a tax collector. That is not a popular occupation. Everybody in that circle is going to think, yeah, well, that's great. And they're going to walk over and start talking to the fishermen because that's a lot better conversation. Now, we might do that with somebody that works for the IRS, but in the New Testament, tax collectors were coyotes. They were thieves, just one step above thieves because the government sanctioned their thievery. That's the only reason that they wouldn't have been counted as thieves. They were about the lowest rung of professionals that you could possibly find. Then we know that Simon the Zealot was a politician. He's just one step above the tax collector. So my guess is Matthew and Simon talked together quite a bit, and everybody else just cut a wide berth around them until they saw how Jesus could change their lives. Judas, according to the Gospel of John, was a thief and a liar. That's not just what's implied about him through the Bible. That's what the Bible says. He was a thief and a liar. The other disciples, we have no idea. The Bible is quiet. Church tradition says that a couple of others were fishermen, but there is really no basis for that. That's just people's belief. So there might have been a couple other fishermen. We might have had some farmers in there. They could have done any number of different things. Maybe some of them were carpenters. Scripture is literally silent about them. But we do know this. They responded to the gospel. They became the disciples of Jesus. And they became, as a result of that, the pillars of the New Testament church. The ones that would carry on the message of Jesus after he ascended into heaven. They were the ones that were entrusted with the whole work of the kingdom. And over the course of the four gospels, a number of people, even at times, thousands will join them and then they'll walk away. And then others will come and they will join the ranks of the believers, the disciples, and then they'll disappear until finally in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascends into heaven and the church in its entirety is assembled together, there are only 120 people there. One of the disciples is gone at that point. His name is Judas. And we will talk more about his story as we get into the Gospel of John. But there's 11 of them there and then the rest that make up the 120. That was the early church. But these guys, they were pillars, true pillars. And I want you to see how they came to know the Lord because it is dramatic and it is common. And you'll see both of those as we get into this. We're in John chapter 1. We've got to do just a little bit of background as we get moving in this. So I want you to see how we meet the first disciples. But first, let's spend a little bit of time with John the Baptist Now, the first chapter of John covers four days, the first four days of Jesus' public ministry. That's how fast John makes his way through this gospel in order to record the last three years of his life. In one chapter, four days, and each one of them is called out. The first day finds John the Baptist in the water baptizing people. And it also finds some very prominent, powerful Jews coming to him, very upset about what he's doing. Join me in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now follow all of this. John is the last Old Testament prophet. He just happens to be in the New Testament. He has come to announce the coming Savior. So John has announced the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. He has preached a gospel of repentance that people can actually repent of their sin. They can turn and go a different direction. He has preached a new life and he is baptizing people into that new life. Now that's not unusual at all. The Jews baptized people. There's a lot of folks who make the mistake of believing that baptism by immersion is only a New Testament practice, only a new church practice. It's not. Baptism by immersion goes all the way back into Judaism. The Jews would baptize Gentiles that wanted to become Jewish. They're called proselytes. So they would, of course, circumcise them, but then they would baptize them by immersion. So it was not an uncommon practice at all for somebody, a rabbi or teacher, to be out in the water baptizing Gentiles that were coming into Judaism. But John was different. He wasn't baptizing Gentiles. John was baptizing Jews. And that's what upset the Pharisees. That's what got Jerusalem all tied in a knot. So they sent some of their representatives out to the Jordan River to find out what in the world is going on. Jews are being baptized. This doesn't make any sense. So when they get there, they get right down to business. Who are you? And John goes into all of the discourse that we just read. Now, one of the most disconcerting things for these Jews is that he had baptized Jesus. And Jesus was starting to gain some momentum. There were some rumors flying around about him. So on day one, the Jews come and they confront John. On day two... John will further explain his baptism, but he will do something really dramatic. Pick up with me. We're still in the Gospel of John. Now let's just go to verse 29. The next day. Now that is a really important statement. If you want to make something pop off the page of your Bible, underline those words, the next day, because it shows you the pattern of what's happening and how fast it's happening. So the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man whose ranks before, who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And right there, John says, I came that he might be revealed to Israel, to the Jews. 
That's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. But the dramatic part of the whole thing is found in verse 29 in this statement. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jew, every Pharisee, whether they were from Jerusalem or whether they were from Nazareth, doesn't matter. Every Jew knew what he was talking about. Because you see, that statement from John is tied all the way back to the most penetrating question asked in the Old Testament. I'll show it to you. Keep your finger right there in John chapter 1, but go with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Now, if you are a Bible mapper, I want to encourage you to map this out. You just start at the cover of your Bible on one of the blank pages there and write these words. Simple process of salvation. Simple process of salvation. And it's just going to be three stops along the way. And we'll put all of them up on the screen so that you can see this. The first stop is in Genesis chapter 22, the first book of the Bible. Now, the backstory is Abraham has just had a son named Isaac. Abraham was old when Isaac was born. His wife was old when Isaac was born. Isaac was a child of promise. For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for the prophecy to be fulfilled, for the promise to be fulfilled, because God had told them that they would have a child even in their old age. After her womb should have been closed, Sarah was going to give birth, even though she had been barren up to that point. So they had been waiting and waiting and waiting, and Isaac had been born. And then God tells Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up onto the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him. And that's where we pick up with them. This is in chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now that's very important. Remember that name, the land of, say it with me, Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now here's the rest of the story. God told Abraham just to go to the land of Moriah, and then he would show him the mountain on which to sacrifice. When Abraham got there, 
The Lord opened up his eyes to see this right place, and he sent him up a very specific mountain that is today called Mount Moriah. And sitting on the top of Mount Moriah today in the nation of Israel is the Temple Mount. It is the same place that God would build his temple. Solomon would build it. Herod would extend it. They flattened the top of the mountain, but it is the exact same place. That is the interwovenness of God. So this sacrifice that was an example of what was to come happened in the exact same spot, the exact same geography that God would say, I will build my dwelling place and I will live among men. It was all relational, even back to the Old Testament. It was just symbolic at that time and carried out by the time we get to the New Testament. This was a special place. So Abraham takes Isaac and they go up the side of the mountain, this place that God had revealed to him. And the whole time, Abraham was sweating bullets. He didn't know what was going to happen. He just knew God would provide. And he knew that he needed to be faithful. Isaac would ask the penetrating question, It's found in verse 7. He says, my father, and Abraham says, here I am. He says, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Now that question all the way back in the Old Testament becomes a significant question all the way into the New Testament. And it becomes the question that every believer has to wrestle with, every person that would become a Christian has to wrestle with at some level. So this is our first stop along the trail. So let's just say right back here is where you're born, and you have made it a ways through life. We don't know how far that is. Everybody's story is different. And you come to stop number one. That's where we ask the question, where is the lamb? That is a question every person has to deal with when they choose to deal with their sin. Where's the lamb that's going to become the burnt offering? Where's the lamb that's going to pay the price for my sin? How is God going to take away the penalty of my sin? Where is the lamb? There are all kinds of versions of that question, but they all come back to the same idea. Where is the lamb? How is God going to deal with this? Or worse, how am I going to deal with it if I am left on my own? Where is the lamb? Isaac asked that question, and it carries all the way through the Bible. Interestingly enough, in the four Gospels, each of the writers will spend a significant amount of time answering that question. Just like we saw in John chapter 1, verse 29, when we come to stop number 2 on this trail. John says, Behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Every Jew knew the story of Abraham. Every Jew knew the question that he was answering. They were all familiar with Isaac's question, where is the lamb that will become the burnt offering? And now all of a sudden in John chapter 1 verse 29, John says, behold the lamb. And when he says that, he is pointing everyone to Jesus. Behold the lamb. Every person that would become a Christian will come to this point. Behold the Lamb. That's where we will find Jesus. Now, as we continue on through this little sub-journey of this pattern, of this process on this trail, it will lead us eventually to the third stop, which is found in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Turn there with me, will you? Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 11. 
It is not lost on me that John, the same man who wrote the Gospel of John, writes the book of Revelation. He writes these words. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now here's the third stop. After a person comes to the point where they can say, Behold the Lamb, and they can see Jesus for who He is, they will go through a process until they come to the next stop, the final stop, and they can say, Worthy is the Lamb. Sorry for my handwriting. Worthy is the Lamb. And then they progress on until they see Him face to face. That is the process of discipleship. It begins with saying, where is the Lamb? It takes us to the point that we say, behold the Lamb. And then it eventually leads us to the place where we say, worthy is the Lamb. And we start to worship. We start to worship God and we take the the spotlight off of ourselves and we say it's not about me, it's about Him. And that's discipleship. That's faithfulness. And it is so simple when we see it, it's just three stops. Deal with your sin, confront it, come to a place where you see that Jesus is the Lamb who takes away your sin and get to a place where you are worshiping Him all the time. The problem is a lot of people will stop at number one, they'll even get all the way to number two, and then they just stop. They can say, behold the Lamb, but they never get to the place where they say, worthy is the Lamb. And that's tragic. That's sad. That's terrifying in a lot of situations because this is is the whole of discipleship. This is what it means to become a a disciple. And that's what we see even among those that Jesus called in the very beginning. Andrew and Peter, James and John. Well, if you don't believe me, let's take a look in Scripture and you'll see how it works. Back in John chapter 1. We're going to pick up now in verse 35. Again, we have this phrase, underline it, highlight it, make it pop off the page. The next day, this is the third day in the public ministry of Jesus. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He says it again. Now, the Jews have heard it, but now Andrew and James, it is well believed that they were the two. They were the two. And the Bible's going to show us how we get to that conclusion. But it's Andrew and James that were disciples of John the Baptist that were standing with him when Jesus walked by. They had believed everything John had taught. They had become his disciples. They had been baptized with John's baptism. These two men had said, we want to live under your teaching right up until the moment where John says, behold the Lamb of God. And they are very quick to walk away from John and go follow Jesus. Take a look at this. Verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What a great story. In the midst of it, there are three salvation statements that we find. Now, in order to go through these, I had to reorder them just a little bit. There's number one that shows up first, and then number two following it, of course. That's not great revelation, then number three. But to put them in the right order, we're going to take number two out and make it number one, and then we'll go back to number one and make it number two, and then we'll eventually end with number three. Make sense? Good. So it all starts this way. As they are following Jesus and they say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? There has been all kinds of speculation about what their question really meant. There are some scholars who would tell you that when they said, where are you staying? That was the moment that they said, we're all in, we'll go with you. But those that know the original languages and have really studied it out, and I am not one of those people, I do not know the original languages, but those that do, and I trust them, would say that really what they were saying was hesitant. Where are you staying? They were pausing. Supplication then would teach us this as we begin to suppose what really they meant. We would land at this place. We know you're busy right now. We'll come find you later. We know you've got a lot on your plate. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. You've been busy all day long. You probably want to go get something to eat. Maybe you're kind of tired. You want to lay down. We'll come find you later. And then Jesus responds to him and says, no, you come right now. There are a lot of people in the church and a lot of people outside the church that have made those same types of statements. I'll come to Jesus later. I'll come find him later. I'll find him when it's convenient for him. I'll find it when it's convenient or find him when it's convenient for me. I know God is too busy to care about what I have going on. This is a rhetorical question, but how many of you have, don't raise your hand or answer this, how many of you have thought that at some point in your life, God is too busy to care about what's going on in my life? How many of you have heard other people say, well, God is too busy to be concerned about what's happening, I'll find him later. Or worse, how many of you have heard people say, it isn't a good time for me to become a Christian, I'll do that later. They're postponing things. Well, in this particular case, when these two disciples looked at him and said, where are you staying? By all appearances, that's what they were putting forward. We believe and we want to follow you, but it's just not really a good time. We're not sure we can jump in. We're not sure we can go all the way. But Jesus says, you come with me. Yes, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. You come with me. I want you to. I want you to be here. And that leaves us wondering then, what happened? When they got back to the house, what happened? What did they talk about? When we put together the character and the nature of Jesus, we know this, he answered all their questions. He had to. And he showed them who they really were. He confronted them with their sin. That's what Jesus did for them. That's what he does for all of us. He answers our questions and he confronts us with our sin so that we can see our need for a Savior and respond to him. It's the pattern again, the process of discipleship. That's where we say, where is the lamb and behold the lamb. That's all the process. That's how we get there, by dealing with those types of issues in our life, but choosing to accept Jesus' invitation to go with him. 
So then the, the second statement that we find in the process of salvation, and this one comes directly from Jesus, he looks at them and says, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? So when they come to him and they say, where are you staying? Jesus follows it up with, what are you seeking? As if to say to them, if you're looking for a conquering king like all the rest of the Jews, if you're looking for a military leader, you're barking up the wrong tree. I am not that person. But if you're looking for a savior that will change your life, come with me. We all have to answer that question too when we come to the place that we see the Lamb and we hear someone declare, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We have to answer this question. What are you seeking? What do you want from Jesus? What are you demanding from Jesus? What are you looking for in Jesus? What are you seeking? It's a great question. It's a godly question that leads to the third salvation statement. And this one is found down at the last part of this passage we just read. Verse 42, look at this. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, back up with me. Here's what happens. Andrew, sometime between the hours of 4 o'clock in the afternoon and midnight that night, said, This is really the Messiah. I've got to go get my brother. He matters to me. I've got to go get this man who is so close to me, and I've got to bring him here. All of that happened within an eight-hour period of time. Peter was back on that same day just to meet Jesus because Andrew went after him. Which, by the way, the unique thing about Andrew as one of the disciples, he never preaches a huge sermon in the Bible. You're never going to find him behind a pulpit. What you are going to find in Andrew is a man who is going out and getting people and bringing them to the Lord. And then he goes out and gets another one and brings them back. And then he goes and gets another one and brings them back. You want to know why he can do things like that? Maybe it's tied to his occupation before Christ. He was a fisherman. I'm going to go get another one. I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to go get another one. I'm going to bring him back. Now, this isn't a rhetorical question. This is given to all of you fishermen. How many of you have thrown your line in the water one more time, even when you knew it was too late and you needed to go home, just thinking, i got to get one more? Well, that was Andrew. Andrew kept throwing his line into the water to bring one more back to Jesus. But the first one that he brought was his brother, Cephas. And Jesus makes this statement to him. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now that is a salvation statement. You may not see it for that, so let me show it to you. It involves two parts. You are, and part two, you shall be. Every one of us in Christianity, in Christ, experiences the depth of this teaching. When we are able to look and see, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, that is the moment where we are confronted with our past. You are, you have been, this is how you have gotten to this point. That's God laying everything out before us. And nothing is hidden from the Lord. I don't care how hard you try, nothing is hidden from God. He knows all of it. So he says, you are, these are your sins. This is the pain that you brought into your own life and into other people's lives and into our relationship. You are Cephas, but now you shall be. You have a new identity. You have a new purpose. You have a whole new path in life. I could illustrate it this way. From here backwards, you have the you are statements. From this point forward, you have the you shall be statements. That's who you're becoming. 
That's who you're becoming. And John actually shows us how that works. It's found in John chapter 1. We haven't read this yet, so skip backwards to verse 16 with me. If you are going to make anything at all jump off of the page of your Bible, if you have ignored every other suggestion about what to make pop, you make this pop because this is good stuff. Verse 16. For him, for from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, John says, we have all received grace upon grace. Now we hear about grace all the time. And we always think of it in the singular. We have received grace. John right now is teaching it to us in the plural. Grace upon grace. There are actually two aspects of grace. There is the grace that saves. The grace that covers the you are part of your life. And there is the grace that moves you forward. That's the part that helps you become the you shall be part. So there is a grace here. And there is grace here. They are distinctly different, yet the same. This one is not a miraculous work of God. This one is. This has absolutely nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with God. This one is the grace of process. This is the grace of growth. This is the grace that, here's the biblical word for it, sanctifies And it means that we have to choose to get into that type of grace. And it is truly that. It is a choice to move into that type of a relationship with God. Now, there are people that are going to go from here to here, and they're going to stop, and they are saved. They have found Jesus as their Savior, but this is Jesus as Lord. This is the the grace of you shall be. The disciples found that, and every true disciple afterwards has found that. Who am I going to become in Christ? And there is a grace available to you to help with that. It comes from God. It's a beautiful gift from God that helps with that very process. It is what James would say, the point where we become not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Now I'm doing what the Bible says. But it requires an interesting choice, if you will, on our behalf to train ourselves. Some versions of the Bible say it requires discipline. I want to take you to the book of 1 Timothy to show you what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Paul writes to Timothy, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That's the way it works. You train. And in that training, you become who you are supposed to be. Andrew and Peter, James and John, and you'll see in just a second, Philip and Nathaniel spent three years training with the Lord. Three years in his public ministry, learning the the points of discipleship. They had to because on their own steam, they were never going to make it. We have to do the same thing. That second grace 
is a grace of time. It is a grace of experience. Everything that happens in here is not an overnight kind of thing. We have to grow through it. Three years the 12 disciples spent with Jesus. Three years the Apostle Paul spent with Jesus in Arabia after he became a Christian. There's a pattern of three years of growth where we choose to train ourselves. That's where we learn the Word of God. That's where we learn how to pray. That's where we learn how to listen to the Lord. That's where we learn how to move and act and do things in the name of the Lord. And that's the exact same place where, in the name of all that is good and holy, we learn to be still when we need to be. That's the process of discipleship. And it takes time to get there. We have to invest that time. And if we will, we will become doers of the word. We will become faithful disciples. Disciples, really, if you were to define the word, simply means this. They are the people that have heard the message and have acted upon it. They are people that are faithful unto their faith. That's disciples. That's what it means to become a person of faith. That's what it means to become a saint. You have heard the message and you have responded to the message. You're doing what it says, as James says. You have become a doer of the word. Now, the easy thing for us is to say... Well, that works for people like Andrew and Peter. They're they're the tip of the spear kind of individuals. They're fishermen. They're blue-collar workers just out doing life, paying the bills, buying the baloney, if you will. They were just taking care of everyday aspects of life. And Jesus called them out of that into a new life. You are, but you shall be. He still does the same thing. The kingdom of God is made up of ordinary people that have responded to the message of the gospel. Listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 1. Don't turn with me, just listen. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human beings might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's why God calls ordinary people. You have nothing to brag about. You're just ordinary people. That's how God made up his kingdom. That's how he made up his church. And that's why he poured out upon us grace upon grace, that we might experience that. Pretty amazing when we see that. We're not alone. We're not left out on our own. We are counted among the group of disciples that all have the same background. We had to ask the question, where is the lamb? We had to be confronted with Jesus. Behold the lamb. And hopefully we grow to the point where we say, worthy is the lamb. That's a process of discipleship. I'll show it to you with two more. Let's go back to John chapter 1. We're almost done. Just hang with me. Verse 43. Hear those familiar words again. The next day, this is the fourth day of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. 
Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's two people that responded to the same message that we just saw, but they responded in different ways. When Philip was confronted with Jesus, when he heard, behold the Lamb, he believed just like that. So he went and found Nathanael, also called Bartholomew. He brought him to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb. He's the one that we've heard about. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And that statement alone made Nathanael stop dead in his tracks. And he said, You heard it. Nazareth. Is there anything good that could come out of Nazareth? There is no way the Savior came from Nazareth. The Savior had to have come from Jerusalem. How in the world would the Savior come from Nazareth? Are you nuts? That would be like us saying... North Dakota? Can anything good come from North Dakota? There is no way that could be. The Savior had to have come from Montana. That's the way it should be. This is God's country. That's exactly the way we would say something like that. But then Nathaniel met Jesus. Jesus told him about his past. Actually up here. Told him about his past. And from there it led to his future. You are Nathaniel. Nathanael said, how do you know it? Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Nothing's hidden from God. This is the you are part of the story. And then he moved into the you shall be. Because right in between there, Nathanael said, you are the Christ. I believe I am with you because you saw me under the fig tree. And Jesus said, is that all it takes? Is that it? Just that I saw you under the fig tree before you ever saw me? That's all it takes for you to believe? You North Dakotans are not very sharp. That's what he's saying. But then Jesus says, if that impresses you, wait until you see everything else. You are going to see things you cannot imagine. So he said to him, you are and you shall be. And all of that is the process. That's discipleship. And those same processes are the ones that we follow today. That's why these are the first stories recorded in the Gospel of John. Because we all walk the same path. The question is, where are you at on the path? Are you back here not even worried about your sin? Or have you gotten to this point where you're asking this question, where is the lamb? And that's the part of your journey. Maybe you've gotten here to behold the lamb, but you haven't gone any farther and you're not at that place yet where you are singing, worthy is the lamb, together with the angels and the saints in heaven. You have to ask, where am I at on the trail? Where am I at in process of Christianity? Which grace have I experienced or am I still holding off at arm's length the first work of grace? Where are you at? And only you can answer that. And those questions are as varied as the number of people in this room and well beyond. They're different for everybody. They truly are. And they should be because those are the stories of salvation. Though Jesus saves us all the same way, He does not save us all through the same process because your life is different that's the you are part of it Jesus is going to save you the same way he saves me that's through the cross of Jesus Christ but the details leading up to that they're different you just expect that they're your details and you let God do with it what you will there's a lot of other things that I was tempted to put into this message and 
for the sake of time, I just had to figure out how to get out of the message, how to not keep going, because we could stay here all day long looking at these six stories, and that's a preacher's dream, by the way. We'd stay here all day long looking at these six stories of salvation. There's that many details within them, and showing you your own, and it would be so much fun to go around the room and say, now tell us how you journeyed on this trail. It would be so much fun to go around this room and say, tell us about grace upon grace and where you're at with it. That would be a blast, but we can't do it. So I had to figure out how to wrap the message up, and at the time that I was wondering about that, I happened to be paying attention to Mark Zuckerberg as he was standing in front of a congressional hearing this past week answering for some problems within his business. The business he owns is called Facebook. Facebook. And Zuckerberg has had some problems in the past few weeks because hackers from the East Coast have hacked into Facebook and they have gotten all kinds of information out of there. And then there's problems and political issues that go with it, and we don't even need to get into that. But what was interesting to me was Zuckerberg, as he was standing before this congressional hearing, which, by the way, some of the questions were really good, and some of them you would have to think, these people are leading us seriously? That's the question they choose to burn right here? That's terrifying. And I saw a lot of different ones like that. But here's what struck me. Somebody hacked into my Facebook account. I have zero worries about that. They can have any information that is contained there. Now, by the way, we need to pay attention to Internet security, but it shouldn't be on social media. Because anything that you have on social media shouldn't be a reflection of the deepest parts of your life. It ought to be a reflection of the God that you serve. So here's the greatest thing that anybody could have. If they want to hack my Facebook account, good for them, because this is what they're going to find. Under religious views, mine says, follower of Jesus Christ. And the rest of my Facebook page needs to reflect that. And if it doesn't, then shame on me. I don't care if somebody hacks my Facebook account. They're going to find Jesus. And that's what they should find. And if your social media explorations are directing people towards you, then you're doing it wrong. Direct them towards Jesus. Now share some of the details of your life, but you better, if you're sharing the worst parts of your life, you better show them how Jesus is involved in it. And if you're showing the good parts of your life, you better be giving credit to the Lord for that. So hack my account. Knock yourself out. Some might say it's the most boring account ever, and other people might say, wow, I like the fact that he's directing people towards the Lord. So I'm not worried about that. And you shouldn't be either, because if you're hiding things on there, they're exposed to other people. But the cool thing is, it's your opportunity to direct, just like Andrew would, just like James would, just like Philip would, to direct other people to the God that you love. And that is the end result of discipleship every time. I want to bring other people in to experience what I have. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Well, Father in heaven, we've covered a lot of ground. There's no question about that. John did as well as he moved so quickly through those four days. Lord, there's a lot of teaching there. And it's captured with few words. So my prayer today is that the number of words that we've shared or that I have shared have not gotten in the way of anyone understanding how much you love us, how much you care about us, and the immediacy of desire that you have. Lord, we know that we can interrupt you at any time that you will set aside whatever it is you're doing to be with us. Thank you. And Lord, we know that to be true in grace upon grace. 
thank you. Praying especially for those today that need to receive that first grace, the grace of salvation. I pray that today will be the day. And I'm praying for those that need the grace of the process of getting to a place to declare worthy is the Lamb. Lord, would you get them moving and help them train themselves and find other people to help in the training so that they can grow with you. In Jesus' name, amen.